following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. We have, uh, I think all of us together, been working pretty hard since Easter. Um, We've had two really deep series with some really challenging ideas. They're beautiful ideas, but they're very challenging to us. Maybe particularly challenging to those of us who grew up in church and have had uh, certain types and aspects of the story drilled into our heads. And what we've been trying to do for the last, you know, seven, eight, nine weeks is untie some of those really difficult double knots, right? Um, and, and maybe put it back together a little bit differently. Um, and because of how much it's been and how weighty it's been, uh, I thought it would be fitting to stop here today and talk a little bit together and um, do some Q&A, right? Because I think this invites further discussion. And I, I know that happens in other settings, but I would like to have some of that discussion with you as well. So what I'm going to do here is give you a quick summary. I'm going to go very fast, just like one sentence on each of the weeks since Easter because there's been a lot. And it will hopefully jog your memory and maybe inspire some of the questions that you might otherwise not have come up with. And then we will uh, we'll take live questions and we'll, we'll talk together about some of this stuff. And um, I also got some questions by email, which we'll get to if we have time. But really, I would like to bias the questions toward people who are actually here in the room today because it's a little bit more conversational that way. So here's what happened. On Easter Sunday, we started a series called A Beautiful Gospel. And I preached a message called Good News and Bad News about how the way we talk about the gospel, which is a word that just means good news or glad tidings, actually makes it sound like bad news. But that the actual true gospel is very good news. It's the fantastic news of Christ's conquest over death and all the forces of evil. That's good news. We don't tend to talk about the gospel that way. We talk about it um, with, you know, pictures of cartoon people falling into fiery pits and so forth. Um, The second week of that series was called The Sheep and the Shepherd. It's a a message about Jesus, how Jesus is both the good shepherd who cares for the sheep, his flock, but also one of the sheep. This is the miracle of the incarnation, that, that God became a human being. And not only was he one of the sheep, but he became the lamb that was led to slaughter. The third week of that series was a, a meditative um, journey, if you will, called Five Stones, where we thought about five stones that we see in Scripture, and we spent some time meditating on each of them. The tombstone, the cornerstone. Remember the word scandalon, the stumbling block, the, the stone that trips us up? The execution stone, and the heart of stone that God so desperately wants to turn into a heart of flesh. And we spent some time thinking about how each of those stones might kind of uh, influence our own faith and our own understanding. And then we concluded that series, A Beautiful Gospel, with a message called Artists of the Gospel, in which I made the case that we ought to be participants with God in the ongoing act of creation and redemption, and that when we do that, it is a form of artistry. So that was the first big, dense, beautiful, but challenging series. And then we went on to one called A Christ Like God, which might have been even more challenging we started out that with the sermon, The Gospel in Chairs. If you're here, you remember the, the visual aid of the two chairs. The message that uh, I was trying to preach that day and, and 
come, get across was that Jesus came not to save us from the wrath of his Father, but rather to reveal to us the heart of his Father. And the way and the place that he does that best is at the cross, that his submission to death actually reveals the heart of the Father perfectly. The second week was called imitating emptiness. We talked about this wonderful Greek word kenosis, which means emptying. And the, the scriptures tell us that Jesus emptied himself. And in fact, we get this picture that God has always been self-emptying, even in the act of creation, emptying something of himself into the world. And that we are called to be imitators of God, imitators particularly of Christ in his submission and his humility, even to the point of his humiliation. You remember how those words are related to each other. And then the final week of that series was maybe the most difficult one of all, which was the old God and the new question mark, which was my first attempt to answer some questions about whether the God of the Old Testament, who appears to command violence among his people, is compatible with the God of the New Testament. Uh, And is the statement that I made in the first week of the series, the Gospel and Shares sermon, that God is like Jesus and God has always been like Jesus, there's never been a time when God was not like Jesus, is that actually true if we see this picture in the Old Testament of a more violent-seeming deity? And the answer to that was the next phrase in the repeated mantra, which is that God's people haven't always understood that God is like Jesus. Right? So then in the last two weeks, we've been talking about the Holy Spirit. We had the day of Pentecost uh, two weeks ago. And then last week, I gave a message called Life in the Spirit, in which I argued that if we are to model ourselves on the actions of the, pos- of the apostles, that is to say, if we are to be like the early church, then we have an obligation to get out of the way when the evidence of the Holy Spirit is presented to us, that the Spirit is working in someone, especially if that person doesn't fit with our definition of who's supposed to be in and who's supposed to be out. That if the Holy Spirit is working, our job is either to participate or get out of the way. That was last week's message. And that brings us, that brings us current. So um, I hope that that was helpful and not tedious. I, hope, I know most of you memorized all of the things that I've said over the last nine weeks, but for those few who didn't, you know, maybe this was a helpful exercise. And so here's what I'd like to do. Um, uh, first, I'd like to change the batteries in this because they're dead. Um, but then we're going to pass it around here if you want to ask a question. I would ask that you do it with the microphone. I know that's not totally comfortable for everybody, but this, um, your question is one that you're friends here would love to hear, and maybe more to the point, the people who might listen to this in the future on our podcast would like to hear the question, not just the um, response. And I am going to call it a question and response. I know it's very uh, wishy-washy to do, but I, I, am, I absolutely need you to know that I do not think I have all the answers. Okay, so this is not going to be exactly a question and answer in every case. There will be some question and here's my response, I hope it helps, <laughs> um, kind of uh, responses. Okay, so... Who has uh, the first question? I'll bring this down here and maybe somebody be willing to be uh, the mic MC after Angela. Is this on? It's coming. Let's go big. Uh, Okay, you ready for this? (laughs) Yes. So I'm from an uh, evangelical fundamentalist background, and your sermon um, in which you talk about the... um, conflict between the Old Testament God and the New Testament God um, was challenging for me because I am, I have not had the cause yet, I had not had the cause yet to question the teaching that the um, 
Bible does not contain any contradictions. Mm. And my question is a little bit nerdy, but how old is that claim that the Bible does not contradict itself? And how does that go with our value of roots as a church? That's a... I love that question so much. Thank you. We can all go home. You, you, that question was a, like a sermon. Okay. The, the, the question is, uh, um, how, how old is the belief that the Bible doesn't contain errors? Is that correct? So the, the technical word for this in nerdy church circles is inerrancy, right? And um, in one sense, it's impossible to say how old that is because, you know, somebody, one of the apostles might have held it. I don't know that for sure. I will say this. The amount of time that it has been assumed to be a central tenet of Christianity and something that you must confess in order to be a real Christian, capital R, capital C, copyright mark, um, (laughs) that is very new. We're talking like early 20th century, the movement of uh, the fundamentalist movement with a capital F, um, it's not just like, oh, they're fundamentalists, they're really conservative. There's actually a movement named fundamentalism, which has the, the tenets are called the, uh, the fundamentals. And one of them is an inerrant gospel, or an iner- inerrant scriptures, excuse me. So it's not very old the way that we perceive it, the way that you were taught it. Right? Um, and I, I am simply of the opinion, that, as you probably could tell from the previous sermon, that it's so so tenuous. It is so, you have to do such incredibly nonsensical uh, interpretive gymnastics to, to hold it that it actually does damage to the gospel. Whereas if we say to ourselves, let's be honest, this thing, this verse says this event happened this way, and this other verse says the same event happened in a different way, and the two ways are mutually exclusive, that's called a contradiction Okay, you can throw the Bible out completely when, when you come across that, which is what some people have done. I'm so sorry to, 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 to say, and you know that. Or you can say, okay, what's, what's another option? How can we work a little bit harder, dig a little bit deeper into, this, into these scriptures that we love um, and that we want to submit ourselves to, in a, to to some meaningful extent? Um, so I'm getting beyond the bounds of your question. How does it... How does it uh, work with our value of roots, well, um, we love going way past, in back, back past in history, past the 20th century, right? So the, the uh, fundamentalist modernist controversy and all that stuff, that is like, that's like a little tiny baby in the family of, of God's history, right? And we have some much older, wiser people to, to talk to and to hear, more importantly, to listen to. So it's a great question. Thank you. See that hand? This isn't one you talked about specifically, but um, I think it has a lot of relation to the topics you were talking have, have been talking about. I've been reading um, Greg Boyd, uh, God of the Possible, mm-hmm. and I was just wondering if, if, if you might comment on how, how open theology plays into some of, some of this old God, new God. All right. Yeah, you're gonna make me. Uh, you're gonna make me give the background here, aren't you, Ken? <laughs> it's an important question, and it's an astute one. Um, Ken is referring to a a super duper inside baseball term called open theology or open view or open theism. There's different ways of saying it. Um, 
in brief, that view holds, and it's espoused by, you mentioned Greg Boyd and others, John Sanders, actually Dave Basinger, a, a, a local uh, religious philosopher, uh, is big in this movement in the beginning, beginning days as well. It, in brief, it basically says that God is uh, omniscient, meaning knows everything, but does not know all the things that happen in the future because the future literally does not exist. It's a, it's a departure from true classical theism which says that God exists outside of time and therefore knows everything that, that will happen. Um, now, what Boyd and others are very careful to say, and which I think their critics often miss, is that because God knows everything that has ever happened and everything that is happening at present and is you know, the, the wisest, smartest, like, coolest deity ever, right? <laughs> That's not like the philosophical religious term, but you know what I mean. Because all those things are true, God can predict with very good uh, accuracy what will happen in the future. But it's, it's, sort of a, it's a little bit of a technicality, but what it does is it opens up possibilities for how we explain the problem of evil and suffering in the world, right? Because the opposite view, uh, taken to its logical extension, basically means that, that you, you have a God who not only knows everything that's happening, but but mandates and actually enacts everything that's happening, including the, you know, the, I don't need to get too specific, I know there's other children in the room, but the really horrific things that happen in the world, was that was God, like, pressing the, you know, the tsunami button, right? And so, I actually, I can only speak to what, what's been in my own life, that, 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 that stream of, of religious philosophy has been quite influential for me. And um, I think it's, I don't know if it's the same track as this other one, but I think that they are probably parallel tracks. And there's a lot of overlap with the thinkers and the writers in these two streams. Um, and so uh, I hope that gives the answer in a way that, that helps you and also helps the person who had no idea what open theism was before they walked into this room. And uh, you and I might be able to go deeper for an hour or so over an appropriate beverage about that particular question. <laughs> but for now, let's, let, I hope that's enough. <laughs> Other questions? Um, I come from a, a background in faith where it seemed like there was an unhealthy hierarchy of sorts when it came to the spirit. You had Christians and then born-again Christians and then born-again spirit-filled Christians and then <laughs> on top of that, those who prophesied and spoke in tongues and stuff. But what exactly imparts the, the spirit? Because in scripture, there is some precedence that there's, that the filling of the spirit is a separate occurrence. And sure. that was, again, my background, that it was a separate occurrence. Right. And then a question out of that, I was speaking with Aiden our nine-year-old, about the Holy Spirit last week. And I love this about Aiden, and I'm irritated uh, at the same time because <laughs> he can be so stubborn. But he, he flat-out refused to believe that only Christians would have the Holy Spirit. So what exactly imparts the Spirit? It's a tough one. Yeah, right. Um, I actually feel like I'm getting a little bit of a cold. I'm going to have to go home now. <laughs> I think the band can take it from here. Um, <clears throat> Wow. Uh, okay, a couple of questions there. <laughs> there is, um, there is a, a subset of Christian thought that, that as, you, as you rightly point out, you know it because you were raised in it, that, that sort of not only says but insists that there's a separation of um, receiving Christ into your heart as your personal Lord and Savior, however they would say that, right? 
And then secondarily, receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, being baptized in the Holy Spirit is how it's sometimes said to, right? And that second gift um, is expected to be manifested in particular ways with particular spiritual gifts that we see in the New Testament. Um, often it's the, it's the speaking in tongues, uh, using other languages, right, in a, as a prayer language kind of thing. Um, it seems clear to me in the New Testament that there were people who had confessed Christ and had not yet received the Spirit, and the apostles lay hands on them and they receive the Spirit and they start to manifest these gifts, right? So that is a, that is a thing that happens in the Scriptures, right? Um, my personal take on that is that's a thing that happens in the Scriptures because the, the church is, is nascent in its understanding of how God works and how the Spirit works and, and so forth. Um, there's another, the, the, kind of the opposite pole of this, this uh, stream of faith is the one that says, no, nobody ever speaks in tongues. <laughs> that doesn't happen. That dispensation has passed. That was something that happened then. It doesn't happen anymore. And if you do that, then you're probably possessed by a demon, right? So these two poles, at, no big surprise if you know me, I'm in the middle of this, right? I'm not on either end. I like the middle road. So I would say that the church was sort of evolving in its understanding and, you know, different, the spirit was 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 revealing herself to different parts of the church at different times in different ways. And now what we have is a much bigger bank of, of uh, information and the events of the, of the Spirit coming to the church, right? And so I... I both. I mean, when, when you confess Jesus as your Savior, when you commit to dedicating your life to him, I think that's, that's the only requirement, right, such as it is. I don't, I don't insist that people go and have the second experience. However, I have been witness personally in the room with people who have had that same kind of experience. And some people might see that and, and describe it as, well, their faith became real to them for the first time. Their faith in Jesus became real to them for the first time. And the Holy Spirit really got a hold of them because it was real for the first time. And the, whatever happened before might have been important, but it was kind of like not personal or something, right? That's one way you could explain that. I don't necessarily... Um, insist on that explanation either, though. I mean, and to the, this will transition to, the, to Aiden's question, which I have to say is like 20 times more astute than yours, uh, <laughs> or, um, or challenging, or like uh, insightful, or spiritually curious. I mean, you should work a little harder, Jesse. Um, <laughs> no, Aiden's question about can people who are not Christians receive the Holy Spirit, like, uh, the easy answer to give to that is, well, no, of course not. The Holy Spirit is a uniquely Christian thing. But then you think, well, the early Christians thought that the receiving of the Holy Spirit was a specifically Jewish thing. That was what last week was all about, right? And so my only strong, definite answer to that question is we ought to be open to seeing the Spirit work in places where we don't expect the Spirit to be working. Um, I, I wouldn't go any further than that with any definitive word. At that point, we'd be into the maybes and I don't knows. Is that Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so maybe be open to the places where the Spirit's working. And last week you talked about Council of Jerusalem. All these good Jewish guys get together and listen to stories that make them say, hey, wait a minute. The people who were clearly out uncircumcised, it's been really easy. Suddenly they're in, and they listen to the stories and say, yep, okay. In our age, what would be stories 
that would correspond to the ones the council at Jerusalem listened to, which, back to, to Jesse's question, involved the spirit falling in undeniable ways on people who are clearly out. Um, that they had s- certain things they really pointed to. Um, so yeah. what would spark that conversation now? That's a great question. Um, I think it could be a lot of things. As I, as I, the thing I sort of pushed for last week was that if we see the fruit of the Spirit in people's lives, where previously we had seen the, the works of the flesh, this is, the, this is more inside baseball, but if you were here last week, these are the two terms that Paul sets up in, uh, was it, is it Ephesians or Galatians? I, thank you. Jeez, boy. Um, good job, Pastor. Um, <laughs> when you see not only people acting in a nice way, which is some of what the fruit of the Spirit is, right? Like, somebody's exhibiting those fruits, you'd say, that's a nice person, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, etc. It's not just seeing that, because I think it's important to recognize that those positive character traits exist in people who confess any faith or no faith, right? Uh, And I think the church has done a great disservice to non-theists particularly, by saying that only Christians are nice people. It's just false. Like, a lot of really nice atheists. In fact, many of the atheists I know are way nicer than a lot of the Christians I know, right? And so what I would say is that if we're going to use the fruit of the Spirit as a a gauge for something happening, I think it's not just seeing it in a vacuum. It's seeing this movement from one to the next, from the works of the flesh, all this nasty stuff that we all do on our worst days and when we're not responding to the Holy Spirit, if we are seeing those things diminish and the fruit increase, that's, and, 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 and the person in, which, in whom we are seeing that is saying, God is doing a work in me, right? Then I think we ought to accept that at their word and at our observe, observation, right? Whether it's somebody who should be eligible for, the receive, for receiving the Spirit or not. Does that answer your question, sort of? Yes, it is interesting how it ties in with Aiden's question. Aiden is very smart. Yeah. I think we have a hand back there. By the way, I love how many of the best questions have come from people under 18. This is making me so happy. No pressure, but your question has to be really good now. Just like that. <laughs> so when you say get on board or get out of the way, how does that work when one of the acts of, what, like, when the, one of, the acts of Jesus was to include all people? Um, I, th- I kind of lost the sound of the microphone there for a second. So can you say that again for me, please? So when you say get on board or get out of the way, how does that work? How does the get, a- get out of the way part work when... Like, sort of the way of Jesus mm. is to include all people. Right, right. So um, that may be kind of a, um, a poor communication on my part. I, I sometimes um, overstate stuff like that. So when I say get out of the way, um, I'm not saying that you should, like, be hands-off and give up on being part of people's lives. I'm certainly not, especially when it comes to the work of including people who we start to see the Spirit working in. Um, what I mean is... Um, I want us to take the posture that the early church took when the Gentiles started to convert and they had to decide and they said, you know what, let's not make it extra difficult for them, right? And so I think sometimes in the church today, um, with lots of populations of people who we have always thought or been taught that they don't belong in church, um, we tend to put um, extra 
restrictions on them. We do make it difficult for them to turn to God. And we, you know, if you, if you were to ask somebody who's been oppressed or excluded from church for whatever reason it might be, um, does the church seem to make it easy for you to turn to God? Their answer would be no. As a matter of fact, I turned away from God or from church when I was 12 or 16 or 23 or whatever it was. And um, I guess I didn't put very many specifics on that, and perhaps at some point I should, but is that helpful at all? Yeah, that's a good question. Thank you. Yeah, any question up here? Um, so th- this might be related to the old God, new God idea. Um, when, when we teach about world religions in school and in global studies, um, we often teach the monotheistic faiths as one thing, mm. that, that Islam and Judaism are related through Abraham and that Christianity is related through Abraham. Um, so I'm kind of curious as to the role of the Trinity in those other two faith systems Hmm. and whether or not, um, in in particular with regards to Islam, Hmm. um, because Christianity has long since held that, that Judaism is part of the family, Mm -hmm. but at least right now the contemporary view seems to be that Islam is not part of the family. So I'm kind of, I'm kind of curious as to what you're, thoughts are on that. Yeah. Yeah, so the Abrahamic faiths share uh, some ancestry and some history. And I think you're correct to point out that we Christians tend to um, look favorably upon Jewish people. Um, if, you know, it's not to say that we necessarily think they, that, they're, that we don't need to tell them about Jesus, but we don't need to... Um, be afraid of them or, you know, I don't want to get too culture worry here, but there's, you know, when it comes to Islam, we forget that there's that, that same common ancestor there. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, we have at times here at Artisan done some interfaith conversation. We did one about Abraham, as you, as you know very well. And I hope to do more with that in the future, actually. Um, we'll be doing some stuff, and this is probably me proving that, that we're not doing as good a job as we should with this. Um, your point, that we tend to welcome Jewish voices, but not um, the voices from Islam. In a few weeks, we will be having uh, a Jewish voice help us talk about how, how the, uh, help us learn about how... Um, the Jewish tradition interprets scripture and how that might be different from how the Christian tradition does, but there's not going to be an Islamic voice in that conversation. I do think in the future it would be, one idea that I've had is to, to, um, to host a night uh, particularly about how each of these monotheistic Abrahamic faiths um, view peace as part of their obligation as followers of God. And um, because there's so much emphasis on war right now, whether it's Islamic terrorism, whether it's our response, whether it's um, Israel and Palestine, all of those things. So that's something, um, this is one of those things where I throw it out there, and if people are like, hey, that thing you said, you should definitely do that, then it's more likely to happen. So um, I feel like I rambled, and I'm not doing very good justice to your, your, 
your question, but your question was a really good point as well as a, a question. So um, I actually saw a hand here, if, but, but since we've had mostly male voices, if you don't mind, I'm going to let Leslie have her uh, question first, and then we'll come to you. Um, this is actually to piggyback onto your question. Um, so uh, apart from Abraham, and knowing the story in the Old Testament where Hagar calls God, the God who sees me, mm. right? And she, he, God helps her and her son as they depart from right. Abraham. Are there any other references to Hagar and her line in the Old Testament or in other ancient scriptures that would, yeah. you know, bring some light to this question? Well, there, there are. I don't, actually don't know the complete answer to your question. Um, so... There may be others that I'm not aware of. That's very common. My biblical knowledge is finite, woefully finite. Some days I'm very aware of this. But certainly there, there's the, the story of their departure and God's continued care for Ishmael. Now, if you don't know, Ishmael is the, the son via the handmaiden. Uh, Abraham took matters into his own hands and tried to, tried to get God's promise fulfilled with another woman instead of the wife um, who God promised would be part of this building a great nation. And so Ishmael, Hagar is the, the other woman, and Ishmael's the son, and they're eventually driven away, but God protects them. And I think there's even something about uh, Ishmael becoming the father of 12 princes or something like that. It's kind of mirroring the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the protection that God places over Hagar and over Ishmael is actually very moving. It ought to be for us. Because it's one of those cases where we don't trust the promises of God. We try to take care of it ourselves. We screw it up. And God continues to work in our lives and through our lives anyway. And so that's the one that I'm aware of. And there may be more, but I, I, I confess to not knowing beyond that. So, okay. We have time for a, maybe a couple more. It depends how, how uh, long the answers are. <laughs> this one ties in with the uh, couple of questions back and about kind of getting out of the way when God is doing something, when the Holy Spirit is doing something. And I was kind of curious about your thoughts about syncretism, which mm. in my understanding is, you know, the blending of different religions, you know, we kind of, this, what I believed plus Jesus, or ah, throw in the Christian God on top of some other practices and so on. I guess, how, where, where does, what's the practical way that we as Christians, you know, do we talk about certain things or we just are glad that they're starting to be open to Christ but oh well, they still do these kind of weird other stuff and you know I mean right. other cultures and parts of the world that I've traveled in sometimes have some really weird you know I mean they keep the old chicken bones going and you know mm -hmm. other I don't know just so I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on that sure yeah um, I, I think your question goes to some of what the uh, Jerusalem Council's decision that they handed down um, was intended to accomplish. So um, that event where the church made their formal decision to welcome in the Gentiles who were coming to Christ without placing undue essentials on, or undue non-essentials on them, um, I've never gone into what, what those things were. So they say, when James writes to these Gentile believers, he says, we've decided, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to impose on you no further restrictions than these essentials. And I've never said what they are. Um, but they're, it's like... Um, one of them is fornication. Uh, one of them is um, meat that's been used and it's been strangled. Or one of them is blood. And so the common theme there, in, in my opinion, it seems quite clear that the common theme is practices of idolatry. 
So we, we, you don't have to follow the Mosaic law, but you also can't continue, you can't persist in these, um, this is a term that we wouldn't necessarily use in this way today, but these pagan practices, um, well, some of us might, I don't know, but you have to let go of those things because you mentioned like chicken bones or whatever, right? The, those things are incompatible with the gospel of Christ, right? And so there's a sense in which if somebody has another and a significant kind of deep-seated religious faith and praxis, that if that person comes to faith in Christ, it's absolutely appropriate to, to reject those things, to turn away from them in the course of turning to Christ, right? Now, where that, that kind of gets extrapolated into other things, like if you are a Christian, you can't do meditative prayer because that's an Eastern thing, right? I just get, that's not, no. <laughs> so if by syncretism you mean trying to practice two mutually exclusive religious faiths, absolutely, I think we should avoid that. But if by syncretism you're, you're asking about, you know, can a Christian ever do transcendental meditation? Well, I don't, I mean, a, a Western Christian who, you know, has unwavering faith in Christ who wants to meditate in that particular way, I don't think that, like, that that's going to result in them coming off the rails of the faith. Now, because I see both sides of everything, you could go into a place where, where um, Buddhism is practiced or uh, lots of other religions, and some of those same practices would be absolutely inappropriate because they would be um, kind of a coming under of something else that's not, that's not appropriate for us who confess Christ. Um, am, am I doing an okay job answering your question? All right, yeah. Yeah, as with so many other things, my, my pastoral answer is it's complicated, right? And you have, to, you have to be intentional, you have to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, you have to be using your mind, right? And so it's, it's too simplistic to say you can always do this and you can never do that. We wish that were true. That's why fundamentalism thrives, because it is an easier way to navigate your life. The harder way to navigate your life involves all kinds of difficult questions like the one you ask. If I practice this meditation in my room, is it different from practicing it in Shanghai? <laughs> it might be. What do you do with that? That's not black and white, and we really want things to be black and white. So th- thank you for that great question. I hope that I did some justice to it. Okay, I don't exactly know how to word this question, but from your sermon last week, the two passages that you used, Galatians 5, and then I don't remember what the other one was, but in both of those, you talked mostly about the positive things, the fruits of the Spirit, um, and the fact that all these people who were excluded are no longer excluded. Mm-hmm. But you skipped over all of the really difficult stuff about you know the things that we must then... Um, do and I, I can't remember what the other passage was, but in Galatians five, like before the fruit of the spirit, it says the works of the flesh are sexual, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And things like these. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, I guess I, I just I am still struggling with how to reconcile those two Mm -hmm. things because you know those are all all, I mean we still are flesh and blood right those are still things that we struggle with um and I think that at least the contemporary 
evangelical church has really tried to make it more black and white and say, like, no, you can't do any of these things. Um, But how how do we... Yeah, I guess specifically the sexual immorality part is really hard for me, um, just with like where I think you were going last week too. Um, and so to the extent that you can in this room, like how ha- has the definition of sexual immorality changed um, over time and especially with the emergence of the purity movement or like what yeah. did they mean by sexual immorality at that time? Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm getting a cold again. <laughs> no, that's a great question. Let me first address like, one of the things I think is underneath that question, which is the idea of the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit. And I, I think you're correct to... You're hinting at something. You're about to touch on something there that I think the church wants that to be a binary thing. Like we're exhibiting all the fruits of the Spirit or we, we're exhibiting all the works of the flesh. And when we, be, when we get saved, we should go from one to the other, Right? And that's where you get the thing like, well, um, atheists are all bad people because they're not, you know, they're, they don't, they're not saved. So obviously they're only doing works of the flesh. They're never doing these fruit of the spirit things, right? And that's what I was trying to get at earlier with Doug's question, which is that I want to see and I want us to look for a process. I expect that the process of holiness, I come from the holiness tradition, right? John Wesley and all those people, is that... Um, it, and this is, this is very, actually, Eastern Christian as well. Western Christianity, until John Wesley kind of appropriated some of this for us, was very binary like that about a lot of this stuff. But what we should expect to see is a process of being made holy. Right? There's even, even the grammar in the New Testament of being saved sometimes says, you are the ones who are being saved. Right? This is continuing to happen. And so if you can, you can kind of... That's why I want to see the, the works of the flesh diminishing and the fruit of the Spirit increasing. That is the mark, I think, of somebody who is having the Holy Spirit work in his or her life, right? Um, so your, your other question, and we are, like, out of time, so this is going to be really difficult, is about sexual immorality. Has the definition of sexual immorality changed? Um, what do the writers mean? Yes. Um, well, you know, I, I, I do want to go to hermeneutics, which is the discipline of how we interpret Scripture, and that's an important one. It, but whenever, if I, and when somebody asks that question and I give that answer, that sounds like a dodge, and I am aware of that. But I just think you can't, make, you can't not go to that question. What did it mean in that culture? Um, and is it necessarily true that that's always going to mean the same thing in, in every culture? That's, now we're into that, like, that's a tough one. And I, tr- I you know, my, my pastoral instinct is to call people to these uh, fruits as they exist on the page. And I would never say to someone who felt that their uh, sexual activity was sinful, oh, no, that's fine. You should keep doing that. I would never say that because I want to trust that that person can receive from the Holy Spirit wisdom and insight and conviction about their activities and their behaviors and their attitudes and so forth. So if, if somebody says to me, I'm you know, struggling with, they would, in, in typically a person uh, who had that perspective would say, I'm struggling with same-sex attraction rather than I'm gay. I would say, let's talk about what that looks like for you and how can I help you walk in the way of holiness the way you sense the Holy Spirit calling you to it, 
right? Um, and I will afford that person the dignity uh, to define that within the, the, what we see in Scripture for him or herself with some guidance and help and insight from the people around them. Now, many people with that same attraction have a different response about what they sense the Holy Spirit calling them to or not. And um, what I have said in some settings is that I want to extend to them the same dignity and I will walk with you whether you have the first uh, interpretation or whether you have the second interpretation on that particular matter and, any, and a whole host of other ones. My job as a pastor is not to insist uh, on one way or the other, but to shepherd a person who is actively and honestly um, and humbly seeking holiness, seeking to diminish the works of the flesh and increase the fruit of the Spirit, right? And so I apologize if it sounds like a dodge, but I'm, I will not get hung up on definitions when it comes to the question of my pastoral praxis in, in, in guiding people who are, uh, I think, honestly and genuinely seeking God. Does that begin to answer your question? Does it raise 16 more? <laughs> yes. I know that it does. I, I, I believe me, I know that it does. And listen, we've, we've let the conversation drop. It was o- over a year ago now that we had our, our conversation on gender, sexuality, and inclusion, which I thought was a really great start. And then through, um, I, I will take the responsibility for, for not guiding us into that next step as a congregation there were reasons why that got dragged a little bit, which I don't need to go into right now. But um, let me remind you what I called us to on that night, which is radical Christian love, not only for people who have a different sexual orientation or gender identity than our own or what we expect to see in people of faith, but also for people who have a different interpretation of the Scriptures. We must express radical Christian love to one another. In this congregation, that is that is mandatory. That is the one thing I will put my foot down about every time. You can have a different opinion, but you cannot oppress somebody with it, and you cannot cast somebody out with it. That is the, the line that I will draw. Many people, when it comes to sexuality, want to draw the line in a different place about a different thing, and I think that's unhelpful and harmful to the Christian church and to the world. So, um, shall we take communion? <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Um, Thank you for such great questions. Honestly, I could do this for two hours. I would love to continue to answer questions about this, and we just are out of time. In fact, we're a little bit past out of time. Um, But thank you for your thoughtfulness. Uh, I talk to people. um, I go to pastoral conferences, and everybody wants to know about your church, right? And it gets very tiresome to me to have the same conversation over and over again. If you know me, you know why. But one thing I tell people every time is that this group of people... I say three things about them. They are fantastically generous. They give and give and give. And when we ask them to give more to something special, they do it. And I say they are incredibly bright and intellectual, and they want to uh, embrace faith in those ways. And these questions are just such a perfect articulation of that. And then I say that they are also, like, really artistic, and the music is wonderful, and the people, even those who are not, like, artists, consider themselves artisans, because that's part of our identity uh, and the way we understand faith. And those are the three things I say to people all the time. I'm so grateful to be part of, let alone pastoring, a community of faith like this one. And your thoughtfulness just bowls me over every time. So thank you so much for who you are 
and for the ways that you continue to work and seek out your, your salvation with fear and trembling and with thought and with dignity. So let's pray together, and then um, I will forego the formal welcome to communion. Just know that if you want to follow Jesus, he is here offering himself to you. And while we sing songs, you can come to the table. Uh, God, we are so thankful for this time together, for the way that, uh, as Scripture says, iron sharpens iron when one person challenges another. And um, we pray that these conversations would be fruitful, that even as we talk more together over lunch and in the coming days and weeks and months in our life together, that you would always be drawing us closer to each other and to you, closer to the knowledge of the truth, closer to a pure expression of your love for all people, including ourselves. We uh, pray now as we come to the table of the Lord that we would uh, receive into our hearts and into our bodies the body of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray and in his name that we trust. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.